Good morning. Grace and peace to you. Thank you, Don, for the songs. Um, once again, encouraging the brothers to get a brochure about the men's retreat. Uh, always encouraging, always uplifting. Uh, even more so from just the fact that you are there with other brothers. Not so much in the details, uh, even in the lessons, although the lessons are good, but just to understand and know other brothers are out there uh, believing what you believe, fighting the same fight that you're fighting all the time. So uh, just want to encourage you that way. Also, uh, at our meeting regarding the Bible classes, uh, please encourage you to stay for that. Uh, if you have it in your heart at all to help out with teaching, we're probably going to need another teacher. So uh, that would be greatly appreciated. So I encourage you to stay for that and pray about it as well. In uh, 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 there, Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And we, uh, we hear that, we can read a text, and we can hear it taught. And sometimes that isn't enough. Oftentimes we need a real-life example to show us how something is done, to show us it can be done, and then to challenge us to do it. Paul here is talking about being a role model. And my immediate question when I thought of that was, am I a role model? Am I a Christian role model? And so my question for you then, are you a Christian role model? Would you be able to say like Paul, imitate my life? as I imitate Christ. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? I think that's a challenge. That's our challenge as Christians. We wear the name. We take up the cross. That's our challenge. You know, the scriptures record many people making the choice for Jesus. You know, Matthew, follow me, and he left the the tax booth and all the money, and he just walked away from it. And Peter and Andrew and James and John, they left their, their fishing, their fishing business, business, followed Jesus. Nathaniel, uh, Philip called him from under the fig tree, and he says, come, we found him. And Nathaniel was all nice curled up there. I don't know if he was a rich man or just taking it easy or what, but he was moved by the fact we found the Messiah. So he got up out of his place. There were others who gave up. As uh, the disciples said to Jesus at one point, you know, we've given up everything. What's in this for us? And many folks did and have done that down through time. But sometimes as we read these examples in the scripture, especially, we, we begin to think, you know, that, that's kind of distant and, and kind of unreal and, you know, Jesus was right there with them, and 
you know, what would that have been like if he said, follow me, how difficult that would have been to resist. And uh, that must have been a real advantage for them. And sometimes we need a real life now example of someone who actually walked away from the business, walked away from the tax collector's booth, walked away from the fishing nets, and said, I've had enough. Well, I've got a story this morning, a true story. And you may have heard of this, especially if you follow baseball. You heard of this. But you may have not gotten the real story, the background story. And this is from uh, CNS News, as reported by uh, John Stone Street. And I'm just going to read most of this about Adam LaRoche. The peculiar story of Adam LaRoche walking away from the game and $13 million. Adam LaRoche was a pretty good baseball player. Uh, first baseman, great man with a glove, hit a lot of home runs. I don't know if he did ever make all-star, Rick, you know. I think he might have. And he was with the Chicago White Sox on the second year of a contract that second year. He was going to be paid $13 million, can you believe it, for one year. And, of course, this was his game. So here's, here's the story. What would cause a superb Major League Baseball player to walk away from the game in a big pile of money? God only knows. In March, that's his... Past March, Major League Baseball player Adam LaRoche shocked the sports world. A 12-year veteran who averaged more than 20 home runs a year, won many awards for his defensive skills at first base, unexpectedly retired. By doing so, he walked away from $13 million, the amount left on the final year of his two-year contract with the Chicago White Sox. Even more shocking than leaving $13 million on the table was the reason he did so. The White Sox had informed LaRoche that his 14-year-old son, Drake, could no longer accompany him in the clubhouse every day. Now, this was happening at spring training, okay, wherever they White Sox spring train. I'm not sure if it's Florida or Arizona. But this is not an uncommon thing where some of the players would have their Older boys, you know, not the wee little ones, but the older boys come and take part in spring training. They'd shag balls, help take care of the equipment, maybe clean the clubhouse, you know, and just be around the guys and be with Dad. Not uncommon, okay? Well, something happened there with him and the White Sox, and they said, your son can't be around anymore. We, 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 we don't want him here. So that is really how the story came out that he just had a falling out with the White Sox because they said, your son can't be here anymore. But as, who was it, Paul Harvey used to say, there's the rest of the story. If you can't imagine walking away from that kind of money for that kind of reason, you're not alone. The 
then again, a lot of what LaRoche does is peculiar, and I mean that in the best way. It's fair to say that most of those who commented on his decision, which in the age of social media means practically everyone with access to the Internet or, you know, whatever, were critical of LaRoche's decision to put his ideas about being a good father ahead of his team and his teammates. Not that it matters to LaRoche. He told ABC News that I have zero regrets. While he admitted to being angry with the White Sox at first, he added that their actions made his decision to retire easier, as he put it, I don't want to be defined by this game. I know there's a lot more to life. Well, this understanding that there's a lot more to life is why Tim Keon, is that the way he's pronounced, ESPN guy? Keon? Anyway, the interviewer of ESPN wrote in his profile, you need to forget everything you think you know about professional athletes. Adam LaRoche is different. Part of the difference, as LaRoche's comments suggest, he's not consumed by the sport, despite being the son of one major leaguer and the brother of another. He has other interests, chief among them his Christian faith and his family. It's why Drake, who attends regular school in the off-season and is homeschooled in the spring quarter, accompanied his dad to the ballpark every day. It's why when LaRoche played for the Nationals and the White Sox, he and other teammates sponsored Faith Days in 2014 and 2015. And most of all, it's why LaRoche and Milwaukee Brewers pitcher Blaine Boyer spent 10 days last November, that would have been 2015, working undercover in Southeast Asian brothels trying to rescue underage sex slaves. Yes, you heard me right. LaRoche and Boyer, working with a group called Exodus Road and at great personal risk, used a hidden camera to identify trafficked girls and also their bosses. These girls were known only by a number pinned on their bikinis. As Boyer told McCown, something huge happened there for us. Adam and I truly believe God brought us there and said, this is what I have for you boys. On the flight home, LaRoche turned to Boyer and said, what are we doing? We're going back to play a game for the next eight months. Upon his return from Asia, LaRoche was haunted by what he had seen and by the fact that it was going on while he lay safely in his bed. Keown writes of LaRoche's nearly cinematic level of nonconformity to people's expectations of what an athlete should be, but a better description would be peculiar. LaRoche's confidence to be peculiar, even at the cost of 13 million, comes from the fact that there's a lot more to life than the world would have us believe but that God is waiting to show to us, maybe through a peculiar ball player. What can we learn from this? I have three things. Now we could probably learn more, but bottom line, first of all, the Lord is looking for some special people. 
The scriptures talk of God's people as being chosen by him, a divine choice. Of having a holy calling, a sacred calling. It's otherworldly. It's not the same as the world. We don't think as the world. We don't act as the world. We don't have the world's values. Different. Peculiar. The scriptures talk of God's people as being his own possession, a very special and select group. You know, if you don't want to be different, you shouldn't be a Christian. You really shouldn't. You don't want to be different from the world. Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. This is the glorious reason for all this. The grace of God through Jesus Christ. It's something that Christians believe with all their heart that this is what life is about. The gift of Jesus Christ to save people from sin and to give us life. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Here is the character that is prompted by this grace. The change is required in us as Christians, the kind of life we're supposed to live, to deny those worldly desires and those lusts and the selfishness and that we just want to do what we want to do no matter what, no matter who's hurt. We don't act that way. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. There's the future. There's the motivation. There's more to life than a game, than a sport, than a house, than a car, than a vacation. Much more. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. Those are our lawless deeds, folks. The ones I've done. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession zealous for good deeds. That's what we're about. God's people are zealous to do good, to do right, to help. Good deeds is defined in his word. The implications in all of this, to say become God's servants, their lives are no longer theirs. Their lives are to be very different from the world and the people around them. But here's the thing. They willingly and joyfully do this. Joyfully. Because they understand what's at stake. They understand the gift of God's grace. They don't reluctantly give up these things. It's a joyful thing because they love their Lord and they understand what he's done for them the cross, and he's becoming one of us, and all that, and the gift that's coming. It's joyful. They're excited about it. They're overflowing with it. They're, they're bubbling 
with the grace of God. I really see today's church is not doing that. I don't know why. Whether we're afraid, we're worried about what's going to happen in our country. Yeah, I'm concerned too, but what are you going to do about it? You know, that we can pray and, you know, we can vote, but it's in God's hands. But if you're in the kingdom, you're in the kingdom. You have your future secured no matter what happens. So God is looking for very special people to serve him because there's big things he wants done. Big things. And that doesn't necessarily mean taking world trips around the world and you know, proclaiming the gospel in some stadium in Beijing. Big things can happen one-on-one, one person at a time. Those can be very big things. Philip reached to a guy, an Ethiopian, one guy, who obeyed the gospel and he went back to Ethiopia. And I think he was instrumental in starting the church there. One guy. So God is looking for some special people. The second thing that Mr. LaRoche's story tells us, when Jesus comes knocking on your heart, there's a choice to be made. Luke 14. He will expose the realities of life to us. What really matters. What is true. He'll expose them to us. And we must choose. Luke 14, 25. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, you know, I think I've said this before, and this is, this is Jesus, though. You've got the large crowds, here they come. This is what we want, right? The large crowds fill, fill all the pews, overflow the church building. I want to see it too. But what's he do? If anyone comes to me, okay. You know, you hear the disciples. What's he going to say? He does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and, yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. And the disciples go, wait, oh Lord, Lord, <laughs> you got a good thing going here. You got the crowds falling. You got to say this kind of a thing. And Jesus has to say that kind of a thing because those are the people he wants. Those who put him first. Because otherwise we won't do what he wants us to do. We won't be sold out to him. He doesn't want pew sitters. He wants doers. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And here's two examples. Which one of you, when he wants to build a tower does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, 
all who observed it began to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So there's a cost counting. Do you really value Jesus and his gift of grace more than your own life, more than anything else in your life, including people, including family? That's tough. But you know, once you make that decision, it all just falls into place. Another one, a wet king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Happened many times in history. One man said, I can't, can't fight this battle. I've got to surrender. We'll work out some terms. There's a cost to be counted. To be a Christian, you do have to give up some things. And sometimes you never know how much you have to give up until you become a Christian. Jesus says, well, you can stay where you are and you can do this and that, and this is where I want you to be. This is what I want you to do. But others, they get called, and maybe like Mr. LaRoe, she says, I gotta, I'm done with this game. There's something else more important I have to do. And maybe that'll be you, and you know what? If your heart is right, it'll be okay with you. It'll be just fine. You'll have no problem with it. Because you know that's what Jesus wants you to do. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Reminded of the rich young ruler. He loved his possessions. He loved his stuff. He loved his things. You know, you're not going to become a pauper and be homeless on the streets. That's not what this is about. This is about are you going to use what God has given you in his service? Is it available to God? Whatever it is. Your checkbook, your house, your car, etc. For the person of faith, the cost is small compared to what is to be gained, life eternal. And in this life, as Mr. LaRoche's story suggests, there is meaningful service. Not just time wasted in a lot of frivolous things. Helping, teaching, encouraging, managing your Christian home, rearing your children in the ways of God, guiding people, combating evil, prayer, whatever that is that God calls you to do. A meaningful life. Things that will have effect on into eternity on the souls of men and women. If you want to make a difference, you hear that phrase all the time, I make it, want to make a difference. If you want to make a difference, you have to be different. Is this the bottom line? You can't be just like everybody else. Especially if you want to make a difference for the Lord. You've got to be different. 
our last thought. John 21. God wants special people. We're confronted with Jesus. We have to make a choice. Often, there is a moment, an event, a trigger point in a person's life which brings about the final surrender of the last rebel fortress of the heart. The fact of the matter is that Christians still hold out even after being baptized. Many do. The old person lives on. But you know what? Jesus loves you too much to let you stay there. He will keep knocking on your heart and tweaking your conscience and coming at you through examples like Mr. LaRoche and the power of the Word of God to get you to change. Because he needs you to step up to more meaningful service. Peter's our case in point from John 21. I've said before I got favorite passage of scripture. This is maybe one of my favorites, this whole chapter. You remember the story? This is after Jesus was raised from the dead. He told the disciples, he's already appeared to him. He said, I'll see you in Galilee. And they said, okay. And they went to Galilee, and they're there waiting for him around the, the Sea of Galilee, Lake Tiberias, as this says. And Peter says, I'm going fishing. Of course, Peter was a fisherman. And that's what these others, not all the disciples were there, but some, and they said, oh, we're going with you, okay? And if you reflect on Peter's life, of course, Peter had left his nets along with Andrew. But I think we're going to see in this story that the nets had not left Peter. And that was the problem. Remember, he had confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, oh, the Lord revealed that to you, not man. But then a few verses later, and Jesus said, I have to go up to Jerusalem to, to die. And Peter says, no, 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 Lord, you shouldn't do that. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Peter wasn't there yet. And, of course, everybody remembers his denial three times. I don't even know the man. Began to curse and swear. I don't even know him. Peter wasn't there yet. He was still hanging on to Peter. So he goes fishing and they fish all night and they don't get anything. Sound familiar? <laughs> Happened before. Luke records it. Well, then they see this shadowy figure walking on the beach. And I, uh, I want to read this in verse 5. As I was reading this over, I know it's not there. We're going to 15. But I thought, you know, uh, the word of God is so great. They, so they, verse 4, the, the day was breaking. They were, Jesus stood on the beach. They'd fished all night. They hadn't caught anything. So Jesus said to them in verse 5, children, now there's two ways you could read this. Different voice inflection. Children, you do not have any fish, do you? Like, answer me, tell me. Or he could have said, children, you do not have any fish, do you? In other words, he knew 
They didn't have any fish. Big difference. And then he says, throw the net over there. And they did, and they got the 153. And whoa, and then John, sitting in the boat, says, it's the Lord. So Peter swims ashore, and there they are, and they have breakfast. And that brings us to verse 15. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? The absolute necessary question. Because Peter wasn't there yet. He was still hanging on. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. I got something really important for you to do. Not catch fish anymore. I got some sheep that need tending. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, some connect this with the three times Peter denied the Lord. I don't know if that's there. Maybe it is, but I think Jesus is just trying to really drive this point home. Do you really mean what you're saying? You do love me? Make him say it. Make him think it. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. In other words, Peter, now it's really time to choose. What's it going to be for you? You've been through it all. I'm going back to heaven. What about you? We want to notice as we close out on what the choice is made. Peter, do you love the synagogue service more than fishing? Peter, do you love being at the temple versus nights out on the lake with all your friends? It's not what he said, is it? Bring it down to today. You love attending church more than going out camping? Do you love Bible studies more than movies? Do you love visiting the sick more than shopping? Do you love singing hymns more than eating out? That's not the choice, is it? What did he say? Do you love me more than these? Me. That's the choice. That's our choice. Jesus is very much alive now. The right hand of the Father speaks to us through his word. It's still the choice to be made. And that's what makes the choice easy. Because it's about him. Do you love me more than these? Whatever it is. Because I died for you. I love you. I gave my life. I became your brother in the flesh. Do you love me more than these?
Jesus says, if you love me more than all these worldly things, I have some very important tasks for you to complete. Are you ready? Adam LaRoche finally came to that point in his life. I don't know what the rest of the story is with him, but he said at that point, he says, I'm ready. I'm giving up this 13 million. There's something else more important to do. Are you still hanging on to something in your life that prevents you from serving the Lord 100%? I don't know. Only you know, and the Lord. Maybe it's time this morning to give it up. He still asked the question, do you love me more than these? If you're ready to serve this Jesus, please come while we stand and sing.